It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode five, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. In today's episode, Spring Hill Community Farms' Patty Wright talks about how she and her husband, Mike Reset, have worked to put the community into their community-supported agriculture farm. Patty and Mike have had a CSA since way before it was cool, starting back in 1992 on their small farm in western Wisconsin, just east of the Twin Cities. I love that Patty doesn't just dig into the philosophy of CSA, but really gets into the practical methods that she and Mike have used to foster member-to-member connections and effectively engage with the core group to improve the farm and its impact. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Second Cup Media, helping tiny businesses build old-fashioned relationships using new fashion technologies. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by Purple Pitchfork, providing tools and resources to farmers and food businesses to help them succeed in business, farming, and life. Welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast, everybody. I'm simply thrilled to introduce my guest today, Patty Wright from Spring Hill Community Farm in Prairie Farm, Wisconsin. Patty, I really want to talk about the connection aspect and how you foster it and how it matters to your operation. But let's start off with with some more background about your farm, just to put everything in context. Sure. Happy to be here, Chris. It's great to have you, Patty. Thank you so much for making time. I know you guys are, you're gearing up right now. Well, we are gearing up. We just we just got the seed order done. We're working on our winter newsletter. So yeah, pretty soon that greenhouse will be uh, in operation. So it does feel like like things are gearing up. It's good. It's good. It's time. Always love another season. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. A new a new start every year. Right. It's a wonderful thing in farming. So tell us a little bit more about about Spring Hill Community Farm. You know how 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 big of a farm you are, a little bit about the area where you are, where you're marketing, uh, how you're marketing. Yeah. So we are located about, uh, as you mentioned, 80 to 90 miles east of the Twin Cities in the rolling hills here of western Wisconsin. Um, We have an 80 acre farm. Quite a bit of it is wooded. We farm about six acres in vegetables. And we um, have a couple hundred households that are part of the farm. Um, And we pack about 150 bags of vegetables each week. Um, Let's see. What else can I tell you about the farm? We started in 1992. We started small. We had about 20 shares. And Mike was teaching at that time. Um, and we've grown slowly over time. Eventually, um, Mike was teaching part-time. Eventually, maybe five years in, he quit teaching. Um, we doubled the size of the, the farm, and then we've kind of built that over time um, and been at this size for, I would say, the last 10 to 15 years. We've kind of found a size... Uh, that fits the land, that fits the way we do things. Um, and so that's that's kind of where we've landed and and works well for for us and the way in which we do things. And if I remember right, CSA is really your only outlet for your produce. Is that right? It is. It is, Chris. That has not always been the case. Um, when we first started out, we were doing just the CSA. Um, for a time, we did some restaurant um, sales. We were also part of a cooperative that marketed to a number of grocery stores in the community for a few years. We learned a lot from those experiences, and um, but eventually decided to just focus on the CSA. So that has probably been the case for at least the last 10 years that we've done just the, just the CSA. Well, and I, as, as I've known you over the last, I mean, probably 15 years or so, um, that the CSA has been, it, it wasn't just a marketing choice for you guys. It was a, it, there was, there was a lot more to it than just, oh yeah, we can make a living selling vegetables by, by packing bags of produce and selling and selling shares. Yeah, that, that, that is really true for us, Chris. When, when we, well, let me tell you a little bit about how we got started. And that would have been, um, we moved to the farm here in, in 1989. We had apprenticed on a fruit farm in Michigan, um, Oh, back in 85 and decided after that experience that we wanted to uh, move to the country and to make our living farming. But we did not come from farming backgrounds. And um, I had grown up in the Twin Cities. Mike had grown up in western Minnesota, but not on a farm. He grew up as a town kid. And um, 
after that experience of apprenticing, we we had this dream. And so we spent five more years in Minneapolis working, saving money, and looking at land. And then um, eventually moved here in 89, but spent those first three years just getting a feel for the place, um, learning the landscape, and trying different things. And in the winter of, must have been 91, we heard Verna Craigness from Philadelphia Community Farm on being interviewed on public radio about a concept that we had never heard about before, and that was community-supported agriculture. And we were so taken by that uh, concept, that philosophy, because it brought together so many of our values around community, around uh, sustainability around taking care of the land. And Mike and I both remember this moment in our kitchen listening to Verna and looking at each other and going, we could do that. And um, of course, that was very naive because we really had only <laughs> gardened for ourselves. But um, nonetheless, we uh, got on the phone and gave Verna uh over at Philadelphia Community Farm, and uh, she and Rick very generously invited us over and shared um, their enthusiasm as well as their uh, experiences and expertise. And And then from there, we met uh, Dan Gentner and uh, got involved with the Land Stewardship Project, which was um, uh invited Trogger Grow that winter. And um, so we, you know, we kind of immediately um, became engaged and immersed in this particular philosophical uh, understanding of CSAs, which was about really the renewal of agriculture and of through linking communities of people to the farms that fed them. It was you know, an outgrowth of, of Steiner's, um, Rudolf Steiner's, the uh, Austrian philosopher that, who had this um, idea that, that pr um, producers and consumers ought to be associated and, and linked by their mutual interests. And that in terms of farming, that that looked like, you know, communities of people gathering around a farm and supporting it and so sharing in the risk that's inherent in farming thereby allowing the farmer to really focus on uh sustaining and tending the land on, so on farming kind of, right that's that's yes, yeah farming exactly and so that was you know that was uh that was kind of what we jumped into when we jumped into um being a community supported farm. And so that, you know, that's kind of what we've took with us in the beginning. We were also kind of came from, oh, backgrounds uh, in community organizing and community um, projects. And so we sort of took that, um, those experiences into the building of our farm. Well, so tell me about that because you were, I mean, here you are in Western Wisconsin on a piece of land and and it doesn't sound like when you got started in this, you necessarily had a community of people that were identifying with Spring Hill Community Farm. How did you how did you foster that community? How did you get that process started back in 1992? Yeah. Um, well, we were recently, you know, we had been in the Twin Cities. Well, me for most of my life prior to that and the two of us for a number of years. And so. We really looked to those communities that we were a part of when we had lived in the Twin Cities to get us started. So um, at that time, we were part of a church community. I had been uh, working with a Quaker-based peace group prior to moving out. And so um, that group was also one that we looked to. We after hearing about this concept on the radio, we got excited about it. We contacted probably 10 of our friends and, you know, who we'd been staying in close touch with since moving to the farm and who had been visiting with us over that period of time. And we called together, um, you know, what ended up being our core group, this group of friends um, that then took 
got excited about the ideas with us and then took that to their friends and family members. So that that first year, our 20 shares were that small group, that group of friends and then their connections. And then it continued to grow really in that same fashion of, um, of word of mouth. But we did kind of start with those couple of communities that we had been um, engaged in in our lives in the Twin Cities and kind of grew grew from there. Has, has your farm stayed rooted in the communities there or is it is it really more of an agglomeration of, of individuals now? Yeah, I would say yes to both. I mean, we okay. still have um, we still have people that are members of the farm that are part of those initial communities, but we've also, you know, it's also sort of branched out, but because it's branched, you know, because we've grown slowly over time, um, it's really been a word of mouth, um, sort of growth so that, you know, we, we might end up with somebody in this neighborhood and then they're a member for a couple years, but over the, that period of time, they start telling their own neighbors. So you get another little cluster over here. So I, I guess we have little clusters of people that are maybe part of this church community or this neighborhood or, you know, this workplace. What kinds of implications has that had for your, for your farm's growth? Is that, I mean, you mentioned that you guys grew fairly slowly. Was mm-hmm. that, was that part of, was that intentional or was that kind of baked into the way that you were, the way that you were marketing or how much did those two yeah. things go hand in hand and how much of that were you really, were you really saying, Oh God, you know, let's, let's take our time and kind of build this slowly. Or was that just because you were so focused on the community that that's the only way you can really grow community? Yeah, it was. Um, so over the first five years, we it, it was an intentional slow growth. We um, we we had young children at the time. Um, we Mike was still teaching. We were still learning a ton, Chris. I mean, you know, I wouldn't recommend that anyone start it with as little as start a CSA farm with as little as we knew. Um but it was a different time then, of course. Um, really different expectations, I think, among your members when <laughs> when nobody knew what CSA was. You know, you guys exactly. were kind of defining it. And no, nobody to compare, um, you know, to compare it to. So that first year, in fact, we, um, we had a killing frost on June 20th. So the first day of summer began with um, dead tomato plants, dead pepper plants, you know, frost kill on the potatoes, the, you know, the whole bit. But I remember that. Yeah. That was, that was the summer I moved to Wisconsin. (laughs) I remember driving across highway eight and there was all of this corn that had been, that had been burned down. Yeah. 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 You'd think we would have uh, learned our lesson and closed the book. But, um, Slow learners, Patty. It's to we you 23 years later here. So, But I want to say, Chris, the cabbage and the broccoli did really well that year. People got a, <laughs> a lot of cabbage. But, but, you know, there was so much enthusiasm at that time. And, um, you know, produce, organic produce in particular, just was not easily... Uh, obtained in those days. And so people were just, people were excited about the concept. So it was really a very different time. So we, we sort of grew as we were able to, um, you know, as we were able to learn and felt like we could take a bit more on. And then um, five years or so into it, we did, um, at that point, we determined that, um, you know, we were in love with what we were doing and, um, Mike quit his teaching job and we, we doubled our membership. So that was a really conscious decision. We really, uh, worked with our members to let them know we were doing that, um, and, uh, sent everybody several brochures and encouraged them to, um, talk to their friends about it. We kind of set up a buddy system because we knew we'd be taking on so many new members and we wanted, um, you know, cause joining a CSA is really, um, uh, requires a different way of thinking about cooking, about, um, you know, the time involved in your meal and your vegetable preparation. So we wanted people to 
have someone else that they could, a member, a fellow member that they could look to um, if if they wanted to. So we, you know, we were very conscious about when we did that big jump in size. And then since then, the growth has been really slow till we sort of found our, our uh, you know, the size that kind of met financial needs and and the, the farm could accommodate and, and our, um, you know, worked for the way in which we do things. Yeah. Right. Now, one of the things I, I find really interesting about your farm is that you've got the, that you really have members working on the farm and it's not just like, you know, some, some farms will have, uh, working members. You guys have a working membership. Everybody works on the farm, right? That's, that's right. So that's kind of the, the, um, I, you know, in many ways, I think that's the heart of our farm are there are, are, harvest delivery days. So we, um, we do actually require every household that's a part of our farm to come out and work on one of those Tuesdays or Saturdays during the delivery season. So that has kind when we first started the farm, that was kind of an optional piece. And, um, we have, uh, that has evolved into being something that we do ask of each member. And that's been something that was really asked of us by the core group, that they felt that that was a really important part of what we were doing, that people who came out were experiencing the farm in a different way, um, were engaged at a different level. And so we do now require that each household come out to the farm. So what that looks like is on each Tuesday and each Saturday, we have about four to five households um, that show up at the farm, and that might be anywhere then from four to five people to 20 people, um, depending on on uh, who comes from each household. They arrive at the farm, say, 9, 9.30. Um, you know, after introductions are made, people are put to work. And some people choose to go to the field, and we might have a couple things that we need to harvest yet for the day's delivery. We might go out and dig potatoes or gather herbs. Um, and some people choose to work in the packing shed. So, you know, there we might be washing, bundling, bagging. Um, and we work then for a couple hours. And uh, we share a potluck lunch together. That's kind of a big deal that we uh, take time to share a meal uh, under our pine trees and, uh, um, you know, just take a moment to visit with each other. And then we, uh, we, we pack in canvas bags. So we then form a assembly line, the bags are packed and our members then drive them back to the Twin Cities where they are uh, left at pickup sites in, um, which are the porches for the most part of people's homes. So what we love about that and, um, is that we get to know each of our members. We get to know them in a small group setting so that we're actually able to have, um, conversations with each of them. They participate in the work. We share food together and it's a way in which members then, um, you know, work on behalf of each other. So there's this, you know, there's this shared work that is uh, an important part of of the farm. And I think that that has, um, that has been really successful for us, Chris. Um, I mean, it's, it's, to me, that's really fascinating because, um, you know, on, on my farm, we were, and I think on a lot of the farms that I, that I worked on over the years were, were very, very focused on efficiency. Like that was, that was our, one of our prime directives. How fast can we get the job done? I mean, quality was of course being important, but we really focused in and said, you know, we, we want to get this work done. And we spent a lot of time and energy measuring that establishing standards. What you're doing kind of takes all of that and, and throws it out the window to a mm -hmm. certain extent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I, it, it, it does. Uh, it would not be the most efficient of packing systems. Um, but, um, but the gain is, is, is really rich, I would have to say. Um, and you have to remember as well that we are then not driving into the Twin Cities. So, um, 
just off the top, we're saving a you know three hour round trip, um, and that that would just be the direct drive in and the direct drive home, not not the stops along the way. So there twice is a week, a, yeah, twice a week is how we do it. So so there's a there's a significant gain in that way, and um, and while it's not efficient in some ways, we have learned. Um, we have learned what it works, what works well to do with members and what doesn't work well to do with members. So there are certain things that we know we have to do ourselves. And there are certain things that we feel like work um, well with a group of people. But we are, we each week we have new people out. Um, you know, they may have been here before, but they certainly haven't, you know, done the same task each time. So, yes, it's inefficient on that level. But the payoff has been in terms of the um, the level of commitment, the level of engagement that we have from our members. I mean, they, they come back year after year after year. Members tell us um, how much they love coming to the farm. They Once they've come once it's so much easier for them to come back a second time so that our other events are um, well received. We just feel like the payoff, Chris, even though it may not be in terms of time efficiency in a task has been uh, in the level of commitment and engagement that we have from our members. And I think it's rich for them. And I would also say it's really, really rich for us so that, um, so that the relationships that we've developed with our members um, is is really a gift to us um, in so many ways. Well, I, I, I keep, yeah, I, I, yeah, Patty. I mean, I've I, you know I've really seen that when we've talked about it. It it hasn't. It's it it doesn't feel like having the members come out is something that you you have to deal with. It feels like it's something that you get to do on your mm-hmm. farm and. That's just such a, that's a refreshing change in perspective, but I think it does, it, it, it speaks to, to your focus on, on the community aspect, um, you know, with community supported agriculture rather than a customer subscription model. Yeah. And the longer we've done it, I think the, the more we've, the more we really appreciate it. And, um, I think that the part, part of it is having the infrastructure structure to accommodate that. I mean, the first few years that we did that, um, people were traipsing through our house to the, you know, only bathroom on the farm. And if it was raining, you know, we'd have a ton of people in our kitchen and we've since put up a, a, a separate building just for that purpose where there's a kitchen and a bathroom. And if it's raining, a place where we can eat. So, um, so we do have kind of the the infrastructure and the experience that make it easier than it once was, and certainly um, it's it's not for everybody. I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, but it has it has a richness that we we truly appreciate, and that, you know for our members too. I would say you know we have. Uh, you know, our, our members do say they love it, but it is a self-selecting group. They know when they sign up that that's something they're going to have to do and, um, and, and they choose it. So it's almost a, yeah. If you put a higher bar up there, you're, you're going to get people that are more committed. Just, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. What yeah. kind of, so what kind of retention rate do you have? If you don't mind sharing that? Yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's usually between 90 and 93%. Wow. Wow. Which I imagine really reduces. I mean, when, when we talk about efficiency really reduces the amount of work you have to do trying to find new members. I mean, that must just be a huge savings in and of itself. I, I, I think it's significant. Um, I, it's also sort of a, um, it's a mental thing too. You know, when you know, you know, if, if you know that most of your members are coming back, if you know that they already know, uh, what to expect in terms of vegetables throughout the season there, you know, cause I think there's a two to three year learning curve as a member in terms of how to cook, what to expect, gathering recipes, what stores well, what doesn't, you know, the more that you can retain your members, the less work it is 
on so many levels, I think. Um, and then the bigger commitment that people have to your farm so that when you do experience those um, killing frosts or I think it was in 2005 or 2007, we had a, a hailstorm of significance here in August. Um, you know, people have experiences of the bounty as well as the risk. And so, um, so that commitment level, I think, is important to build that builds over time and not just in the course of a season. I think, and, and this seems to go along with the, the extreme level of, of membership involvement that you've got, but, but I, I also saw as I was looking through your website in preparation for this, that you do a sliding scale for your membership oh. fees. Yeah, we do. I, I did want to mention that too, Chris. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, yeah, and that is something we've done since the beginning too. We, and again, it was, you know, with and through discussion with our core group that that came about. But it was a way in which, from the beginning, we wanted to make um, the membership in the farm available to, you know, people from a wide range of oh, help a, me out, a, a wider range of economic yeah. uh, uh, perspectives maybe yeah. yeah so so we did we offered the sliding scale um and we do always um name the target uh that we are looking for um for a share the average so amount that you guys the need average to get amount that we need we always state the average amount and and year in year out we make that average amount often a little bit more but it is a way in which th we feel like the community uh helps each other so that people who are have done well can support people who are perhaps struggling and so there's um there's that other level of community engagement where people are people are helping each other out and they know that because they you know they choose a spot on the scale and and um and it's a way i think in which you know people's dignity can be maintained people can uh give freely if they're able to people can um come in lower on the scale when they need to and uh and it's a way in which we care for each other as a community We've also, you know, been in the situation where we have members, they've been members for years, they got fired from their job um, or lost their job for whatever reason. And, you know, we've been able to say, knowing that the community is going um, to support that, we've been able to say, you know, just pay what you can, even if you can't make that bottom end of the scale, just, you know, pay what you can and, and the community will carry you. That's what communities are for. So we've been able to um, do some things within the context of community that I, that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And, and that's been, that's been a good thing. It's interesting, Patty, because I hadn't thought about it from, from the perspective of community members supporting each other in mm -hmm. this. I had really, you know, when you talk about a sliding scale, so often that, that feels to me like you're really asking the farmer to take you know, to take the brunt of somebody not being able to afford the CSA or, or not, not having it be not, not having that money around, you know, the, mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting that you talk about this more as it's, it's not you guys as Mike and Patty having to give back to a member who's on, who's struggling. It really is that, that, that gift is across your community and, and is, is fairly revenue neutral for you. Which is kind of a, I say revenue neutral in the middle of a conversation like this. It sounds kind of crass, but, you know, but I also think it's important because, because, you know, you're not out there getting rich. Um, it, yeah, it very much. I mean, I, I don't mind that term, Chris. It is revenue neutral because we do, we do state that average. I mean, we, we have if we weren't making that average, we would have a problem, you know, and then we'd have to figure something else out. But because we really, um, count on and our experience has been that we make that average we know that we can we know that the sliding fee scale works in that way and it is then it, it does then become members helping each other rather than the the farmer and um 
And, I, and that is an important distinction. Patty, we're going to take a short break to hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. Farmer to Farmer podcast is, all, is sponsored by Second Cup Media, a website design and marketing firm run by Christy Waits and Tom Ponick. They've worked in the technology field for nearly 20 years and love sharing their knowledge and expertise with tiny business owners, including farmers. Their business operates on two fundamental principles, simple plus personal. A key part of building a tiny business in today's big world is knowing how to cultivate strong and lasting relationships with customers and understanding the value of a good conversation. Building a tiny business isn't all about balance sheets and bookkeeping. It's about keeping people engaged long enough for that second cup. The world is changing, the economy is changing, businesses are changing, but most importantly, people are changing. Bigger, better, and faster is no longer sustainable. But tiny is. Tiny businesses are built on a solid foundation of slow growth, strong relationships, and manageable tasks. And Second Cup Media can help. www.secondcupmedia.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is also brought to you by Purple Pitchfork, where Chris Blanchard, that's me, draws on over 25 years in the organic farming business to provide down to earth solutions to the real challenges faced by farmers, food businesses, and nonprofit organizations. I've provided help to beginning and experienced farmers around North America with business planning, individual farm assessments, marketing strategies, management training, packing house design, and ongoing individual and team coaching. With experience on farms from one half to 100 acres, I bring the knowledge and approaches you need to improve your farm, your business, and your life. I don't promise easy, and I don't promise that you'll always like what you hear, but I do have a record of creating real results on real farms. www.purplepitchfork.com Patty, welcome back. I really think this this idea, the, the, well, the sliding scale really, it, it really kind of captures my imagination because I, I remember in, I had also just started farming in in 1990 was my first year of actually being exposed to the idea of of oh wow if you grow things cool things happen you know and and doing farmers markets out in california and and working on other operations and and reading trauger grow's book and getting very excited about the csa idea and this and and i remember that was actually a real core feature of of some of the the beginning the the initial CSAs in the United States was this idea that that there was a there was a total amount of money that the farmer had to make in order to make the farm work but that but that not everybody was going to be able to participate at that same level and i just i i think it it I think it's really interesting because what you do with that, you bring the people out to the farm and that gets them involved with the farm and it gets them involved with each other and and even just by having that sliding scale and 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 pitching it as support across the community, I think it really has that way of of fostering a group sense that we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, i I think that is a really important piece, Chris, and it's one of the ways, one of the things I guess that we're trying to work on currently is this. Um, is this member to member connection that um, that I think we're wanting to uh, foster a little more? This um, this idea that because people quickly you know come out to the farm, they quickly connect with the piece of land here. It's beautiful. It's you know it's different from their urban setting, um, and because we're Mike and I are the people that they see most often. Um, you know, people connect to us fairly quickly. Um, and then they, they meet a couple other people on the farm that day, but they may not see them again for, you know, ever actually, you know. Um, and so we're trying to think about how do we foster member to member connections. Um, and it's an interesting thing because we're not like a church community where people are gathering every week and we're not even, um, you know, although people all live, most of our members live in the Twin Cities. We have a few out here, but they are, they're not in the same neighborhood in the Twin Cities. So it's not like they're crossing paths there. Um, but they're, they share a common interest, certainly, in, uh, in the farm and a commitment to the farm success. So how do we build, I guess, those smaller member to, 
small or those member to member connections. And that's one of the things we're kind of focusing on in the next few years is where one of the things we've done is we've created a member list that people can access so that if they meet somebody on the farm, oh, that person has a three-year-old, our two little ones really connected. We want to get those kiddos together. They can play again. You know, there's an easy way for them to connect with each other or share recipes. Um, we're actually doing a couple of book groups this um, this winter, which we're really excited about. The first one is coming up this, I should call them discussion groups, because um, we're we're watching video and doing some readings and then gathering to discuss them. So in small groups in people's homes. So, and is that something you and Mike are participating in as well? We are. Okay. Um, we can envision that at some point we won't, um, but we're, we're gonna, you know, it's just something we're kicking off right now. And so we are gonna, um, participate in those. We're looking at world food system stuff and then, um, in the first round and then it will be followed by, you know, how does this, what role does this small farm in Wisconsin have in that picture? What's the importance of, of supporting small, uh, small sustainable farms. So, and you said that's a, and and I'm just going to jump in. You said that's a discussion group. You guys aren't coming in with the answers on this one. Correct. Correct. We're, we're just, we're coming in to be, participants in that discussion group. We might have to swing back for a report on how your small farm in Wisconsin fits into the world food system. Yeah, well, so. <laughs> we might have to. We've done little cooking classes, Chris, in people's homes that Mike and I have not been a part of where um, two members have paired up. One has um, one as the host and one as um, perhaps a round of Indian cooking, perhaps a round of how to cook with what's in the bag where um, people sign up, a dozen people show up, they cook together and then they eat together. We've encouraged people to have pesto parties, which they've taken us up on where we send the basil and the garlic in um, to, and then a group of members will get together and make pesto together in someone's kitchen. Um, Another thing we've done that I think is really helpful in terms of members um oh just an opportunity for members to share their thoughts is included uh occasionally throughout the season and in a cookbook that we did one year um included member writings so that members can muse and reflect on the role of the farm in their in their own life and um I think that's really helpful both for the person that's writing, but also for someone who's reading to think about, oh, you know, it does that for me or, oh, it doesn't do that for me, but this is how I feel connected. So I think that, um, I think there's lots of ways in which people can connect with each other. And we're just trying to foster some of those, I guess. It's, it's kind of like the triple bottom line that all of us in, in, in the organic and sustainable agriculture are, are focused on, right? It's not just about the money. It's about the environment. It's about the social life, but you guys are really taking that, um, that, that social piece to a, to kind of a new level with really, and not, you know, not so much in the way that the, of, of charity, which I see some farms doing, but really in the way of, of thinking about how do we, how do we build something bigger out of this? That's just really, I, I love it. I love it. And I think a port, important part of that has been our core group. And um, since the beginning, we've had a core group of about 10 to 12 people that at this point gather three times a year. Um, and that core group looks at the long-term sustainability of the farm in just the areas that you mentioned, the economic sustainability, the environmental, and as well as the social. And, and in some years and some periods of time, you know, one of those rises to the fore, you know, and then we kind of get that, you know, feeling okay for the moment. And then, um, we might look at another aspect of those, of one of those three. And so for a time, you know, the core group really pushed on the economic sustainability and we, um, looked at making sure that, that our healthcare needs were covered, that, um, there was some sort of 
plan in case one of us became uh, temporarily disabled for the season. If um, we looked at a couple years ago, we looked at the need to raise the wages of the people that worked here. And so the core group uh, sent a letter out to their fellow members um, explaining why, th why there was going to be a rise in share price and what that money was going to. Um, and then there are times when the that social aspect gets um, brought to the fore and we, you know, look at how we can, um, how we can push that forward. But I think it's because we have those other voices and that other, that member perspective that regularly gathers, that regularly delves into um, thinking about these issues that we're able to to push them forward in a way that if it was just Mike and I, we wouldn't get there. And so that, I, I just can't say enough about that core group for the development of, of our farm. They are, you know, really invested in, in its success in in being thoughtful about it's long-term sustainability. And the next task, you know, before, I don't, it's not the next, next task, but it will be one of the tasks, tasks over the, you know, the next 10 years is what happens to this farm, you know, as Mike and I need to um, slow down and eventually, um, uh, you know, bow out. Um, what right. happens there? So, you know, that is something um, that we are, you know, just beginning to say, we need to think about this and let's start looking at models. And if you read something or if there's someone you think it would be um, helpful to talk to, let's just begin to think about having this conversation. So that is something that, um, that the core group will also do some thinking about with us. And I, I just think um, we're able to explore these questions in a, in a way that's, um, that's been good because of the, the broader um, perspective that's brought to us through the core group. So I've worked with, with dozens of farms over the last several years and very few of them are, are focused solely on the CSA. Do you think that if you guys were selling to retail stores, moving stuff through restaurants, would, would the core group still be as, as effective and as engaged in your in your farm operation and in that, that kind of that high level direction setting? Yeah. Well, that, that's an interesting question, Chris. I can't say I've thought, I've really thought about that though. There must've been about seven or eight years when certainly that was the case that we wasn't a significant part of our income ever, but it was some, and it was an important part. Um, I didn't ever feel that the core group was less useful than, nor do I think that they felt that they were. Um, it is it is a time commitment, certainly, to engage a core group. Um, yeah, you said meetings three times a year, but I'm imagining mm -hmm. that these are people who are probably in contact with you more often than that. Yeah, yeah, and um, and sometimes sometimes it's because you know we're in touch with them, you know, we're, we've got a decision on our plate. We might not be something we take to the whole core group, but we want someone else's perspective. We draw on them to, for certain things. Sometimes we've had, so, um, oh, what am I thinking of? You know, smaller groups from, from the core group meet to, you know, research a particular topic. Um, so sometimes we will have a kind of a subcommittee that meets on a particular issue. Maybe it's healthcare or something like that. Somebody to try, trying to figure out what health plan you guys should, should be signing up for or how you can make that work in mm -hmm. your, in your business. What other, yeah. what other kinds of things have, what other kinds of things are you engaging with the, with portions of the core group about over the course of the year? I mean, it seems like those big three, those, those big three meetings are focused on these, on these very um, high level topics, but it, and then it sounds like some of that, what I think of as committee work is happening at some of the lower, uh, a little bit closer to the runway, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that I, we didn't have a core group on our mm -hmm. farm. And, and I suppose, you know, part of that was cause I didn't, I didn't really want, um, 
you know, a small committee trying to tell me that I needed to, what kind of tomatoes I needed to grow. You know, sure. that's, that's my job to figure that out. Yeah. And it doesn't, it sounds like you've, you've managed to create a structure that where that, that doesn't happen where you're yeah. not, you're not engaged in what varieties or whether you should be growing seedless watermelons or seeded watermelons. It sounds like that's, that's in your guys's bailiwick, right? The farm, the, the actual management of the farm is what you and Mike are doing. Yeah. I should be clear about the, the core group's role in the farm. Um, cause I think that's helpful. Cause I think farms often do choose not to have a core group because it feels like someone might be, you know, making decisions that they that they don't want them to and our core group has really been set up as an advisory group they're not a decision-making body it's not a board of directors our farm happens to be a sole proprietorship so you know we are the owners of the farm it's not as though we have a uh you know we're a nonprofit with a board of directors um and they are uh grappling primarily with those those bigger those bigger issues the day-to-day stuff who's who's hired to work on the farm what varieties we're growing what our day-to-day operations look like those are not things we even talk about in in the meeting um mike and i really create the agenda we are thoughtful about what's um where it would be helpful to have that member perspective. Um, and, and those are the things that will be on the agenda. It wouldn't be helpful for our core group to be thinking about, you know, what sorts of tools we need or what, um, what, uh, tomato variety to plant, but it might be helpful for them to think about, um, the long-term economic sustainability of the farm. And we might come to them and say, you know, we are not, we are not making it. We need to, we need to figure out how we're going, you know, which we did a number of years ago. We need to figure out how we're going to be able to do this long-term economically. And they, with us, you know, came up with a plan over time that was going to allow us once Mike quit teaching to get health insurance, to, um, create a living wage for ourselves. And in fact, they often push us in a way that, um, we wouldn't do on our own in terms of what the share price ought to be and what needs to be communicated to the membership. So it's really not day to day stuff at all. It's, um, it's kind of that, that bigger picture stuff that, um, and things where it's helpful for us to have the member perspective that, that we, um, that we bring to the core group. I I think I probably mentioned this before, you know, there, there, there is just that different perspective that, that we as growers might have, as opposed to our members. And when you even think about the language around, the people's porches where people pick up their vegetables from the farmer perspective. I think we often think of them as drop off sites and our members think of them as pickup sites. So it's just a different, (laughs) you know, it's that little, it's just an illustration, I guess, of that different perspective and, and, and that we feel like it's really been helpful for us to have that. What kind of choices do you feel like you've made on the farm uh, that maybe would have been different if you didn't have the kind of community involvement that you have. I mean, are there things that you've done from a production standpoint or from a, a crop choice standpoint or from a scale standpoint that, that you, you think if you didn't have those, if you didn't have the people coming to the farm all the time and you didn't have the kind of member involvement that you do, that you would actually be doing differently? Um, I think we've kept our farm smaller, perhaps, in terms of members than we would have perhaps otherwise because because of the level of member engagement we've really wanted to have um, to have a farm that worked in terms of 
our delivery system. If we have too many people here on a Tuesday or a Saturday, our system doesn't work. You know, there's too many people, there's too much chaos created. Um, and so part of what we're figuring out in terms of our size is it has to work for the land, it has to work for the economics, but it also has to work for this community aspect. And so um, if we can only do this many shares and we need this much, you know, in order to live, then, you know, this is what the share price has to be. But we do, we have kept it a particular size in order to have the level of engagement that we do. Well, Patty, it seems, I mean, it seems to me like you would, there's, there's probably some choices that you would make about, uh, even about like what kinds of crops you would grow and whether or not you would you would purchase in crops. I mean, I know, I know a lot of CSA farms that have, uh, you know, they portioned out a part of what they, of what their farm does. You know, they, they're a conduit for somebody's potatoes or they're a conduit for somebody's sweet corn or garlic because those crops don't, don't work in their production systems. And, Mm -hmm. and it's always seemed to me like that's a little bit of a slippery slope towards the, towards the box plans that you start to see out there, you know, where people are just buying produce from a bunch of different farmers, putting it in boxes and, and delivering it to somebody's doorstep without any of the community or the supported uh, aspects in it. And I mean, is that, I, I would think that that's something that, that matters when it comes to, to your farm, that you guys are producing everything that you sell, right? Yeah. So we've, we, yeah, we've actually, uh, that has come up before our core group on a couple of different occasions and uh, with a couple of different uh, outcome. So when we initially started, we grew sweet corn here. Um, and we found that the amount of land it took just, it wasn't fitting our, our, uh, our place here. Well, so we wanted to drop sweet corn. We took that to the core group. They said, yeah, you're right. Why not? It doesn't work well here. We can all do without sweet corn. Um, you know, grow, grow the other stuff. So, no sweet corn from, from Spring Hill Community Farm. That's just, that's the way it's been for many years now. We also took to the core group a few years ago um, the possibility of farming out potatoes, having someone else grow potatoes for Spring Hill. And the decision from the core group was no, that if potatoes are going to be included in the bag, they need to be grown by Spring Hill. Otherwise, one of our core group members said, I'm going to just wonder, well, then where's my turkey? And it's, it is that right. idea of, you know, okay, if you can buy that in, why not buy that in? Why not buy this, you know, eggs, whatever. And, um, and it was an important lesson for us because we, we were really had talked ourselves into, um, you know, starting to talk to people about, growing our potatoes for us. And I think because people are so engaged in the farm, so committed, so feeling like the support for, um, the support that they give us is the, is support for Spring Hill that to start farming that out would have made the relationship look different. And they, they weren't wanting to do that. So it, it was an important lesson for us in what sometimes feels like a good idea to us. Um, might be received differently from members. Now, we are doing something interesting this year. We have a young man, Sam, who's worked with us for, well, who actually grew up as a member of this farm, is now, um, has worked for us for a couple of years as well as for some other farms and is going to incubate um, at a neighboring farm. And he will be growing... um, some of the crops for our fall storage share this year. Now that felt different to the core group because here's a young man that they've got a relationship with that has been part of the farm who this is an opportunity to give a young grower a chance to experiment on his own within the support of Spring Hill Community Farm. So he, Yeah, he's already again, part of that farm organism. Exactly. You know, if, if you wanted to go back to that Steiner language that we kind of started mm-hmm. with. Of, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So there was a lot of support for that, for energy, for um, supporting this young farmer who we already are engaged with. So, um, so again, it's sort of that back and forth where, yeah, they were definitely behind that, but, oh, this idea of kind of putting together, you know, bits and pieces from other places didn't feel quite right. So, well, well I, they, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Patty, go ahead. 
No, I was just going to say that the decisions um, I, I think are are good that come out of there, and they aren't always the ones that we that we thought were going to happen. Um, I can't say there's ever been a decision we haven't felt good about and that um, has been beneficial in the long run, but we don't always, it doesn't always go the way we think. And that's good. Yeah. That's, that's why you get other people involved in your decision-making processes. And I know, (laughs) I mean, you know, and and I see this, I mean, it's something the holistic management people talk about. It's something that, um, you know, if you're, if you're out in entrepreneurial communities, they talk about having mastermind groups. And I mean, all of it's about having other people who can, who can weigh in and, and provide those different perspectives. You know, you're focused on cheap potatoes are kind of a pain and they, you know, specialized equipment and you got to hill them and, and GR, you know, things could look better on our financial statement if we just bought in the potatoes and then realizing having somebody else be able to point out, you know, gee, that's got, that's got a different kind of value to it. It's not, it's not just a pound of potatoes. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's easy to, it's easy to get, it's easy to get mired in your own, in your own yeah. world. Exactly. So, you know, as I know all too well, um, <laughs> you know, so Patty, I, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious to kind of, to kind of move this to a, move the, the conversation up a level as, as we, as we get towards the end of the interview here is just, I mean, so CSA, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways that, that term, um, it doesn't have anything to do with community. It doesn't have anything to do with supported anymore. Um, it really oftentimes is just a, well, I mean, you have people literally selling CSAs out there that are, that aren't even growing anything on their farm. Um, I, I think those are exceptions rather than the rules, but it, it has taken on a, uh, that the term has taken on a life of its own. And I'm curious what you, I kind of have a feeling of what you think about what's happened with that, with that model. Mm-hmm. Um, but how do you, are you, any ideas about how you reinvigorate, how you, how you regain some of what this, this, uh, this really idealistic concept was, was all about more than just, uh, a, a more than just putting ve- vegetables in boxes. Yeah. I, that is a really, I mean, it is the question, isn't it? How do we, um, because CSA has, you know, gone off in, so many directions and um and i think it's a question before the csa community is to is you know how do we how do we move the vision forward is there is there a vision that we can agree on is there you know because csa does um it's not that every farm need or ought to be like our farm or every you know or needs to be like, you know, some other farm, there is, you know, community expresses itself in many, many different ways. And people feel connected um, in all sorts of different ways. People respond to different things. And and it certainly, um, CSA ought to look different um, depending on the farm that uh, in question. And so I think, I do think, though, that um, that there are two things that are at the heart of CSA, and that is community, and it is shared risk. And I, I, I would like to see us sort of grapple with those um, and engage those concepts and sort of continue to think about those as being at the core of CSA and for people to pay attention to, to how to express those things in their farm. I... I guess I, I think for community supported agriculture to have lasting, a lasting presence, um, we need to think about engaging, um, people as community members rather than as simply consumers. And, um, if we don't, I think it will be difficult for CSAs to, compete with, um, other forms of purchasing vegetables, which are much more convenient. And, um, you know, we all know CSAs aren't, aren't particularly convenient and they're, you know, we often require a separate stop to pick up your vegetables. You don't get to pick what's in them. You are maybe paying up front for them. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that it's not convenient, but 
it can be very rich. And I think if we don't offer that richness within our farms, that opportunity for people to feel a connection, to feel that they're supporting a particular farm, we won't have a lasting presence because other people, other there are other ways of getting vegetables that are more convenient. So I think what we have to offer as CSA farms is a richness um, and an engagement and a connection. And without that, I don't really see CSA as having much of a future. So I think that the way in which we can um, nurture that is and we haven't talked about this, Chris, is that each of us on our farms has these uh, individ- you know, communities that support and surround their individual farm. But I think there's also a way in which CSA farmers can be community to each other. And um, yes. I know we have experienced the importance of that over the years. Um, I've mentioned that uh, killing frost. We, you know, we had farmers um, give us plants and uh, tomato plants and pepper plants and come over and help us plant them. When we had our hailstorm, um, we had a similar response with farmers sharing their tomatoes, their beans, um, sharing uh, what they did for fall plantings that was effective. I mean, we just got all kinds of support from from the farmer community. And I think that as much as we uh, develop communities on our own farms, we need to um, be community to each other. And I think in, I think we haven't in, at least in this region, um, done a good job of that. And I think that that is um, certainly a task before us now is, is um, how to be community to each other. Any, any thoughts on the best ways to, to go about developing that community to each other? I mean, it's awfully hard when you see, I mean, how many CSAs do you have in the Twin Cities now? I mean, it's, it's almost as many CSAs as there are members in your farm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, yeah, one of the things we're doing right now, and actually I just got back from a meeting this morning, is I, I suspect that one of the issues in the Twin Cities area was that it got so big, there were so many farms, it was such a wide geographic area that it was hard to pull people together. And we've actually started um, with just a six-county area here in northwest Wisconsin where nobody is really more than you know, from a central location, nobody's really more than say a 45 minute drive so that it makes it possible for people to get together for just a day of, of workshops or even a half day. Um, and we're just starting Chris, but, um, we just got together for a day long event a couple weeks ago and we got together this morning to talk a little bit about how we move this forward. And, um, I do think that that, that the geographical, um, piece is important because I think when, when we're too spread out, when there are too many, it, it becomes cumbersome. There's, I think there's in order to share at the level that I think we need to share in terms of there needs to be a level of trust. And so when people can know each other, um, can see each other on a, you know, annual once a year, twice a year basis, relationships can be formed, trust can be built. And, um, and, and I think that's an important piece of it. And I like how that ties back in to your own, to your own farm, that idea of those, you know, when you can see each other face to face once or twice a year, it Mm -hmm. starts to build that level of trust and that relationship. Mm-hmm. Like that. Yeah. So I think it all comes back to, you know, relationships and, and, um, and people feeling, you know, community rather than competition with each other. And so, um, so I think it's something that needs to be built. I think it's something that will take time to build, but I think, I think it's important that we, um, spend time doing that for and with each other. I like that. Patty, I, I, if it's okay with you, I'd like to, I'd like to end with a, 
it's almost a, a prose poem that was on that I found on your website from one of your from one of your members uh, called "The Gift of Many Worlds." Mm-hmm. Uh, from and I'm and I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of of her name, so maybe you want to you want to say it for me. It's it's Joel Heft. It's actually Hay. Oh, see, this yeah. is why this is why I asked you how to pronounce your name, even though it seemed pretty straightforward before we started yeah. the interview. Okay, yeah. so by Joel Hay, is that okay if I if yeah, I read that absolutely. here? Yeah. I, I just, I think this, as we've been talking, it, it seems like it captures so much, um, that there are many different and hallowed worlds at the farm and we all have our own sense of that. The world I know and love best is the world of kindness and the world of knowing and being known that greet us each visit in the faces of Patty and Mike. They must keep notes. I think as they engage us in conversation about the kids and their activities, about our jobs, about the details of daily life. There's the world of the physical work itself, the picking of potatoes that have been turned over by Mike on his plow, or the cutting stalks of chard, the bundling of fragrant herbs, or the washing of onions or squash. There is the world of the place and the land, the dirt and the rolling hills, the raspberries and the wild turkeys. There is the secret world, at least to me, where the kids disappear, to the pines, somewhere above a world of their own. And there is the world that gets created anew each time, each break time over lunch, out back under the pines if we're lucky and the weather cooperates, from plate to plate and mouth to mouth, nourishment, ideas, stories, and more are shared around the table. There is a world of teamwork in the assembling of the day's bags, the smallest hands placing two zucchinis and then passing bag after bag to the next who adds carrots or a bunch of broccoli. We need more eggplant, someone calls, as Patty orchestrates the loading of the vehicles. And each time these many worlds enliven and delight us and bring us together in new ways. And each time it is a gift. Thank you, Patty. Thank you, Chris. All right. Patty, I've really enjoyed hearing about your farm and about, um, about your CSA and listeners, if you don't already know, you can find links to the things that we've mentioned at the beginning of today's episodes. This wasn't a, a real highly technical talk and that's, that's great. Um, but we'll have links to Philadelphia farm and land stewardship project just as a, a source of information for folks. Um, we'll do that at the website, farmer to farmer podcast.com. And you can go on that, on that website and just search in the search box for right. That's W R I G H T. And, and this post should show up. Um, Patty, thank you so much for being so generous with your time and your experience and just your your thoughtfulness that you bring to to this enterprise. Thanks, Chris. It was it was fun to talk. Talk about talk about community, talk about farming. Thanks for asking me. Thank you, Patty. Wow. I am so inspired by the farmers who are out there making a difference in their communities and on the land. Again, you can find links from the show and more notes at farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Just search for right. That's W-R-I-G-H-T. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the Farmer to Farmer podcast on iTunes, Stitchers, or the podcast app of your choice to get new episodes as soon as they are released. And if you'll take the time to leave a rating or review, it really does make a difference in how many people this show reaches. You can find the Farm to Farmer podcast on Facebook at Purple Pitchfork. And sign, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter, The Flying Rutabaga, at the Farm to Farmer podcast.com or at purplepitchfork.com. With all of that, thank you so much for listening. Have a great week and keep your tractor running. <laughs>